Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey everyone, it's Anne here, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, today we're dedicating our podcast uh, to the issue of donor human milk. And I have several guests today here from Human Milk Banking Association of North America who are going to share with us a, a great deal of information on how the nonprofit human milk banks um, here in the US and North America have been impacted and are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. So first I want to introduce uh, Lindsay Groff, who is an MBA and the executive director at Habana. Uh, Lindsay's dedication to helping medically fragile infants is inspired by her own experience as a mother and milk donor during her daughter's extended NICU stay, formerly the executive director of the Barth Syndrome, uh, Syndrome Foundation. Lindsay has an MBA from Rowan University and a bachelor's degree in marketing from Rutgers University. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And then our next guest is Amy Vickers, who's an RN in IBCLC. She's currently the president of the board of directors for the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. Uh, Amy is the executive director of the Mother's Milk Bank of North Texas since it was founded in 2004. Uh, she's an RN with a master's degree in nursing and healthcare leadership and has a certificate in nonprofit leadership. The Mother's Milk Bank of North Texas has grown to serve more than 130 NICUs and dispense more than 4.5 million ounces of donor human milk from more than 11,000 donors. Amy is also a researcher in the use of donor human milk. Hey, Amy, how are you? Hey, Anne, thanks for having me. Yeah. And then our third. Uh, guest is Kim Updegrove, and Kim is a registered nurse and certified nurse midwife and the executive director of the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin, and she's been with the Milk Bank since 2002. Kim is a past president of the Human Milk Banking Association of North America and currently chairs the Guidelines Committee, which helps to ensure quality control of donor human milk and cultivates the development of nonprofit milk banks. So I'm sure we're going to talk to her about some guidelines. Hi, Kim. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And Summer Kelly. And Summer is a registered nurse, a board-certified lactation consultant, and a co-founder and executive director of the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. She's also a researcher with a master's degree in biology and is dedicated to the biomolecular science of human milk. She also serves in Habana as the chair of the accreditation committee and as treasurer of Habana. So welcome, Summer. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. So Lindsay, let's have you start out. Tell us about Habana and Habana in the time of uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I will. Thanks, Anne. So first I'll start by just saying the acronym because sometimes people um, you know, need that. So Human Milk Banking Association of North America is a mouthful. So we'll be referring to it as Himbana. And what we are is a network of 29 nonprofit member milk banks in the United States and Canada. We currently have 26 members in the United States and three in Canada. And all of our members follow strict safety standards in order to become an accredited member. And you'll hear more about those standards a little later. Um, I wanted to share with you that we had a record number of ounces dispensed. In 2019, our members collectively dispensed 
almost 7.4 million ounces, and that is over, or just about a million ounces more than in the prior year. Great, excellent. And, and uh, today I particularly wanted to stress about uh, how we take safety very seriously, and we'll get into the details from, from our other panelists that you introduced, but for over three decades, Timbana has continuously reviewed and updated screening practices addressing all the latest diseases and potential risks to our patients. And now with COVID-19, of course, we continue to use the best scientific evidence available from trusted sources like the CDC and WHO to ensure that pasteurized donor human milk remains safe for the most vulnerable infants. And one thing I, I wanted to bring to light also is you know, to make a note that when we talk about infant feeding and maternal health during COVID-19, we should also consider how racial and health inequities disproportionately affect Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, and we're working with our partners to shed light on these issues and help to ensure safe pasteurized donor human milk reaches the babies who need it most. And our members are all dedicated uh, in doing that as nonprofit uh, donor human milk banks. Yes, I think that's an important issue because we know that um, one of the highest risks for, um, for infant mortality among babies of color is prematurity, right? And, um, and this is where donor milk is so important for those populations for not only reducing the risk of death, but morbidity um, from things like shortcut syndrome. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's dive in and talk a little bit. So first, um, as, as you all know, the Center for Disease Control just came out, I think, yesterday or the day before with their interim guidance on breastfeeding and breast milk. So we've had like sort of like chunks of information and now they just updated it. And uh, in their update, they mentioned that although we don't have evidence on pasteurization and SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, um, other similar viruses have been inactivated by pasteurization. So do we have any more information to share? Any studies that you're aware of, uh, Summer? Can you share that? Yeah, actually, there's a great study by Chin et al. Uh, that was published in Lancet Microbe. And this study um, looked at thermal deactivation in SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, or COVID-19. And they found that the virus is completely deactivated at 56 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, which is great news to us here at Himbana because we utilize the holder method of pasteurization. We actually hold milk at 62.5 degrees for 30 minutes, well above the threshold for the destruction of the virus that causes COVID-19. So uh, we were pretty happy about that article. And there's a lot of studies being conducted right now. We're aware of some studies um, out of California and other locations that are looking specifically at human milk um, and pasteurization. So we will keep you posted on those results as well. Perfect. So essentially what you're saying is that when, a, when um, the donor milk comes to the NICUs or the floor, wherever, whoever is using that donor milk, we don't have to worry about the virus being in the milk. There's no evidence that that virus is in the milk. Absolutely, yes. There is no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted through breast milk, um, through the outside of the containers, or really through any type of uh, breastfeeding activity, with the exception of direct person-to-person -person contact um, transmission. 
happen. Um, there's no evidence that it's transmitted through bottles or through direct breastfeeding or through donor milk. So that's great news for all of us in this field. Perfect. Yeah. And so I have a question about milk banks and businesses. Um, so milk banks are considered essential businesses because it's food for young babies and it's survival for young babies. Um, so obviously there's some issues with social distancing and changing your practice. So I'm wondering, um, Kim, um, up to Grove, can you share um, what uh, your bank has been doing regarding the social distancing issue? Sure, and I'd be happy to address that. You know, as everybody knows, on March 5th, World Health Organization declared COVID-19 an actual pandemic. And on that day, milk banks were already prepared to identify themselves as essential businesses to, um, to emphasize with their staff that, that milk still had, a, had to be collected and processed and dispensed um, so that we could save lives of very vulnerable babies. So um, immediately in order to keep social distancing in place in a way that would protect the milk and the facility and therefore save lives, we immediately had to dismiss all students and volunteers. Um, so none of those people who would normally be found in the, in the milk banks uh, could enter. For the staff themselves, uh, we uh, instituted the six feet of distance. So we modified our labs and the processes around the office so that we were wearing masks all the time, not just in the labs, and we were separated from each other. We also said immediately that that recipients and donors who were coming to the local milk bank uh, didn't come into the facilities. So they call from their cars and uh, one staff person would uh, go out to meet them with the mask on and either get milk that they were donating because they were already an approved donor um, or give them the donor human milk they were picking up for a recipient baby in their family. We um, were keeping track of everybody's social circles. So, so staff are, are lectured about how to limit the numbers of people in their individual circles. And then we share that information so that if someone were to become uh, positive with COVID-19 within the milk bank, all of the social circles of the collective staff in the building could be identified and notified. Great. Okay. Yeah. It sounds that sounds sounds like you have it all figured out. Um, it's it's challenging. It's it's uh, you know people want to hug each other and shake hands, and we see this in our in our office too that we try to stay away from each other. Anyone else have anything to add about uh, anything that you've done? I, I imagine some people are working from home too like the donor screeners and this know. is Amy. So we are doing very similar things to Kim with the exception of we have cross-trained our staff and have divided um, our staff into four bubble groups kind of. So we um, we've got a group that are exclusively working from home that are cross-trained to do all other tasks. So they're the emergency group that if everyone else is um, out, then this emergency group can come in and keep the milk bank running. And then um, everybody else has been separated as well. So we have um, 
four groups of people that are all cross-trained to do donor screening and pasteurization, which are our, you know, two big functions uh, that are going on at the milk bank. Mm-hmm. And I assume that you just don't have anyone come to work if they're feeling ill, right? Just like oh, a- right, right. We're, we have a, a, a decision tree um, for health of our staff that we apply um, to make decisions regarding whether they're safe to work or not. Yeah. So one of the reasons that um, we're doing this podcast is that people have had questions about milk banking in the time of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you could share some of the questions that you've received by phone or by email or whatever about your milk bank. I don't know, Amy, do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, so the, the questions have sort of changed over the weeks. The early on questions were, of course, immediately from our recipient institutions and parents wanting to know what does this mean for the safety of the milk? And so those were uh, originally the, the first questions. And then the next wave of questions was, is, is there going to be enough milk uh, about supply? Um, and so those questions then are addressed in the next week. And then following up with um, questions from potential donors um, wanting to help, but also wanting to keep their family safe and not leaving their homes to donate milk or um, have lab testing done, those, those sort of things. So I would say that those are the biggest questions that we've, we've addressed. Right. And I suppose along with that would be the issue of the depots, because um, there have been, there's been cutting of staff, furloughs, people that maybe were responsible for the freezer and then are not maybe there anymore, or the uh, depots closed um, because of the... That's true. The majority, I would say at least half of the depots across um, North America are in healthcare facilities. And uh, so healthcare facilities act as a volunteer agent for milk banks and simply collect milk um, in at their facility. So a lot of times this is outpatient lactation support centers in hospitals, NICUs, um, and other um, insti- institutional um, type volunteer groups. And so if they're in a healthcare facility, a hospital, then they're not allowing extraneous people to come in. And so those depots are closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts about that from any other milk banks? I'm wondering, so in addition to uh, difficulty with getting blood screening, just mothers getting their milk to the depots in order to get the milk to the milk bank? How have you guys worked around that? Hey, and I can um, add a little bit to that. We've been uh, experiencing depots who are uh, modifying the way that donors drop off their milk by having contactless drop-offs at the depots, much like we have at the milk banks. So the, the donors actually notify the depots of the time frame they are likely to arrive. And then when they get to uh, that hospital or medical center or doctor's office, they call up to uh, the lactation office or whomever is uh, available to come meet them. And then someone from inside the facility comes out and picks up the milk from the donor. So that as Amy said, 
the donor has no interaction with the facility. So she's not at risk and she doesn't expose the facility either. Mm -hmm. We've uh, had a number of, of interesting queries from volunteers who no longer are allowed in the milk bank, um, but who are willing to help out those donors who just cannot break the shelter in place rules or cannot feel comfortable um, bringing the kids that are now home from schools or daycares to a facility to drop off their milk. And those people, we call them porch angels, they're voluntarily going to people's residences at, at a specific time so that the approved donor is putting her frozen milk on her porch a minute before the volunteer arrives and the volunteer picks up that milk and brings it to a depot, him or herself, or to the milk bank. So our Porch Angel program has grown out of this. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And then Summer, I think you and I have talked about um, actually shipping boxes directly to some of the donors, especially in Wisconsin. We have people that live, you know, in, in places where they don't, it's very long drive, like maybe four or five hours to get to a depot um, if, they're, if, they're, if their closest depot is closed. Yeah. We formalized our shipping program. So we have a really simple process where we send the donor a box, an insulated styrofoam cooler box, and it has um, this really cool, it's called Techni Ice. And it's this, they're like little pillows that you get wet and then you uh, put them in the freezer for 24 to 48 hours. And they are amazing. They work better um, from, from our experience than like those gel ice packs or dry ice. Wow. Um, it's very, very easy to use. The donors don't have to go and try to find dry ice. They just simply can do all of this in their living in their um, in their home. So they stick the freezer pack in the freezer. They load up their box, and then we call and schedule the pickup. So they don't even really have to leave their house. They get the box ready, and they put the milk in there. And then UPS or FedEx would come and pick up the milk. It's a really great program, um, and it really helps donors so that they don't have to leave the house. Excellent. Great. So people who are interested in donating, who are worried about leaving, maybe this is an option for them, especially um, when their partners say, could you please get the milk out of the freezer? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what about, so since we're talking about donors, can, um, Summer, can you talk about uh, what, any kind of advice you give to people when you are doing the donor screening now regarding uh, what to do if they do have respiratory symptoms and uh, they're active donors and they're approved donors? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, our standard precautions cover that. So um, every Himbana milk bank has a food safety plan. And in the United States, uh, milk banks are mandated to operate under the Food Safety Modernization Act through the FDA. And what this means is that we identify three hazards at every step in our process. So we identify biological, chemical, and physical hazards and how we can prevent those we know that human milk has uh, bacteria and viruses in it. And all of our systems, all of our procedures are set up to protect our staff as well as our recipients from acquiring any type of infection due to a bacteria or virus. So luckily all of these precautions are already in place. Um, specific to COVID-19, we are concerned about our staff and about um, the family and society at large. So we do have a temporary 28-day deferral. It's at least 28 days. And that really is um, a mechanism to 
protect our staff and society from the donor needing to leave her house or her family members needing to leave her house to drop off milk or to get blood drawn. We don't want um, anyone in the family to, you know, further the spread of COVID-19. So we have a deferral in place, uh, which can be lifted uh, after the donor is no longer infectious. And I did just want to address that it is inconceivable that milk banks are would somehow be able to screen out 100% of COVID positive or suspected moms because there's so many asymptomatic uh, carriers of this disease. Um, luckily, all of our processes, including our kill step of pasteurization, which destroys coronavirus, um, all of those are in place to keep the milk safe. So we do have a temporary deferral, but that's just to protect the staff and society at large and the donor and her family. Um, and that can be lifted after we screen for medications and other things. Right. So that makes sense. Because even if they're asymptomatic COVID carriers, they can be asymptomatic all kinds of carriers like Campylobacter, E. coli, a bunch of other germs. So that, those universal precautions are just going to protect them from everything, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's thousands of potential pathogens in human milk. So we've considered those. They're in our food safety plan. We identify several viruses and bacteria um, that can potentially cause harm to our staff or to recipients. And we control for all of those, including SARS-CoV-2. Perfect. Great. Okay, um, so um, as you know, there was um, a recent article that was published in the Journal of Human Lactation that suggested that bottles of donor milk should be cleaned upon receiving the shipment um, from the milk bank to the hospitals. Um, and I think they also implied that maybe, well, all bottles should be washed no matter what, no matter where the bottle, once the milk is expressed to the milk, wherever that bottle of milk goes, whether it's going to daycare or whether it's going to the milk bank or if it's coming from the milk bank to the hospital, that they should be cleaned. But the interim advice by the CDC that just came out states that there's no evidence to support washing the outsides of any bottles. Um, do you have any further guidance on this. Some people may be wondering why, you know, this is a published recommendation, um, but then the CDC says, no, there's no evidence for that. And what's the risk? Like, why would we not want to wash outsides of bottles? Yeah, so we do not recommend applying chemicals to the outside of bottles or bags of milk. That is not safe. Um, that to our knowledge, it's never been suggested before. It's unprecedented. Um, it introduces a significant chemical hazard, especially with the concentrations uh, that they recommend, which is a high concentration bleach. We would never use that in any food manufacturing facility um, to treat food packaging or anything that was even near food packaging. In fact, the manufacturers recommend removing all food from the room that wow. you're mixing the bleach in. This is completely wow. off-label recommendation. Um, Clorox and other bleach manufacturers would not support the use of their products on any food packaging, especially a food that's going to an infant or a premature infant. Um, I think um, in addition to being dangerous, um, and presenting a significant hazard, it's completely unnecessary. So that really is the crux of it. It is unnecessary and unwarranted to apply any chemicals to bottles or to bags of milk. Um, 
there's no evidence that it's necessary. There's no evidence that COVID-19 is transmitted through milk or through milk containers. Um, and we have an aseptic technique that's really simple. All you need to do is grab a transfer syringe or a bottle and simply pour the milk from one container to another if infection control is very concerned about handling milk from a COVID positive mom. And that's available on Himbana's website for free. So anybody can go to www.himbana.org. Um, Lindsay, that's correct, hopefully. <laughs> and you can download this infographic. It's a two-page infographic that shows you how to safely handle milk from COVID-positive moms. And mm -hmm. I did want to point out that there's a lot of problems with using, you know, high concentration bleach and other chemicals on food products um, or just in general. So on April 20th, the CDC released a MMWR, which is a morbidity and mortality weekly review. And it was specific about bleach poisoning uh, in the era of, po of COVID-19 and chemical poisoning. So calls to poison control went up, I think like 20% uh, due to COVID. And the very first case study talked about a woman who made a bleach concentration and she had to go to the hospital for respiratory distress. She used the exact same recipe that was recommended in the Journal of Human Lactation. Um, this is not safe. Families should not be making this bleach concentration and putting it on milk bags or bottles and neither should providers. It's completely unnecessary and it's dangerous. Okay, yeah, sounds, that sounds like a, like it's very evidence-based to not be doing that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I want to talk about uh, the, uh, how milk is being used in the hospitals. And so I wonder, Kim, can you just tell me what you've been noticing in Texas regarding the demand for donor milk from the NICUs? Has that gone up or has that gone down? I imagine that there might be, I wonder if like some mothers may not be able to provide their own milk as much because of, um, issues of getting to the hospital or, or being COVID positive and not being allowed in the NICU, things like that? Right, those are great questions. So I'd be happy to address those. You know, initially when the pandemic was announced, um, NICUs, rightfully so, scrambled to put uh, protocols in place that would protect all of the babies within the unit and of course all of the staff as well. And some of those protocols created some barriers that were uh, new to mothers or parents of babies in the NICU. So protocols that included reporting um, any symptoms that you were having, not that they were proven to be COVID-19, but you know, as we try to define the symptoms, the, the big category of symptoms that are seen with people who are then later tested and found to be positive, that's an ever-expanding symptom list. And so NICU's had to ask parents to self-report their symptoms. And they, in order to control the number of people in the NICU at any given time, they, they very often limited their visitation hours so that really they could keep track of the exposures of their staff and other babies and families to each other. So moms who were providing human milk for their own babies suddenly had these barriers in place that worked against their ability to get their milk to their babies. And then additionally, you have schools and daycares closed. So, so moms who could visit with their baby because their other children were in school or daycare that day, they're suddenly home taking care of uh, their families. Um, so it became more difficult. 
And so the initial weeks, we saw a slight increase in the use of donor human milk in the NICUs, but we've seen that reverse back to a more normalized uh, volume of donor human milk across the NICUs. Typically, the Himbana milk banks will dispense about 80% of their donor human milk to NICU patients. And that's pretty much where it's, it's resting right now. We've seen that correct itself. Mm -hmm. Now there's a slight change in the way that donor human milk is utilized in other units in the hospital. So well baby units where donor human milk has become popular as uh, what's called a bridge uh, provisional feeding uh, for the babies whose mothers intend to breastfeed but their breast milk supply is not yet available or not fully available and their child's experiencing mild hypoglycemia or mild hyperbilirubinemia. So donor human milk is used to fill that gap. With COVID-19, hospitals are reporting that moms who are giving birth are eager to leave the hospital sooner. They're not wanting to spend the allowed time in the well baby unit. They wanna limit their exposure and so get their, themselves and their babies home. Well, now their milk really isn't in yet because they may not experience a, a breast milk supply until day two or three, um, long after their baby might need it. So what we're seeing now is instead of donor human milk in the well baby units being in uh, an increasing demand, now we're seeing the moms leave the hospital and need that bridge milk at home, need a bottle or two or three, just to fill in the gap, keep the baby from experiencing any negative effects of the delayed lactation. And uh, then she's able to produce her milk and take over from there. So it's, a, it's just a movement of where that bridge milk is utilized from the well baby units now into the homes. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think one of the dilemmas that many people are seeing is that these, these families are leaving early and then not always having a place for them to go because so many doctor's offices are closed, or especially if mom um, wasn't tested but is a PUI and therefore the baby's a PUI or a person under, um, under interest, no, under investigation, investigation right, PUF, we'll get what that means. Um, so a person under investigation, um, if they leave, it's going to be very hard for them to enter what, what's called a quote-unquote clean office. And um, so then the baby takes the risk of not being weighed. So we've seen some in our community, some parents being told by their by the doctor in the hospital to just get some formula and just um, go ahead and just, if you have any concerns, just go ahead and supplement with formula just in case because of the difficulty in getting the baby weighed. Um, and so um, I think this is an important message that for hospitals that are using donor milk on the floor, they have that system set up that this is a good opportunity to give some extra milk for these families, particularly particularly for families who you know have a very high intention of of, of breastfeeding and want to be successful. Any other comments about that? I think uh, you, there has been some data collected, is that right, uh, through Habana regarding the amount of uh, supply and demand um, through the different milk banks as collectively? Amy? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we are, so, 
So yes, we have been collecting data weekly from our member milk banks. Um, and we, we have a really steady, stable supply of milk coming in and recipients. So we haven't really seen any big swing, swings in supply or demand. Things are very stable for milk banks as oh. far as supply and demand. And I do just want to, you know, thank all of the generous milk donors out there, the superheroes right now that mm -hmm. are saving tiny lives and uh, really have answered the call to help. Just like we've seen a lot of calls to donate blood and to help with blood shortages, we've seen the exact same thing in milk banking. And a lot of milk banks actually have reported an increase in donations or in donor interest uh, from moms who really want to help. So we are so grateful for these superheroes that are saving tiny lives. And we're, we want to extend uh, sincere gratitude for all of our milk donors. Very nice. That's really great. Yeah. And I just, I think um, the last thing I, I want to talk about is uh, just this, there's a lot of angst about the separation of mothers and babies on the floor. So after delivery. So now I think a lot of, um, a lot of maternity floors are testing every mother who comes in because that's actually now that testing is more available, even anyone who's coming to the hospital who's going to be staying there is being tested so they can kind of sort out, sort the wheat from chaff and, and know who's really positive and who isn't. And so, um, even, so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation on how to manage COVID positive moms who want to breastfeed has been different than from the CDC and the World Health Organization. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has advised that mothers and babies be separated, um, which really we all know increases the risk that the infant may not be successful breastfeeding or mom may, be, may not be successful in establishing an optimal supply. Now, um, some physicians and other staff at hospitals have managed to to uh, do shared um, decision-making with families and have allowed skin-to-skin -skin and have allowed families to stay together when the families decide that they want to, but others have been very strict about not allowing this, which is what I'm hearing a lot about. And so what can we say to these, the individuals, the individuals who are making these decisions about the importance of breastfeeding and why this is the last time um, at, at any point in public health that we should um, be taking the risk that infants are not successful breastfeeding. Why is, why is this so important? Like what, what is it about breast milk, even pasteurized milk, when we know that some of the components of breast milk may be partially destroyed, um, why is it still really important in these situations? Why should we be pushing to make sure that babies are being breastfed? Yeah, I think that, um... You know, the CDC and the World Health Organization's recommendation for shared decision-making is very important. And when the family makes the decision to room in, uh, or if they make the decision to be separated, those families should be supported to breastfeed if that's what their intention was. So whether there's a rooming in such situation or a separation situation, we need to really support these families with breastfeeding. Breast milk contains thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of components that support the infant's developing immune system that are simply not found in formula. And passive immunity um, is a two-step process. So the first step is IgG transfer through the placenta. So that antibody is small enough to pass through the placenta and provide the baby with some short-term 
immune protection after the baby's born. Um, but that's a two-step process. The second step is receiving secretory IgA from the mother's breast milk. And these two systems of the IgG transfer followed by the IgA transfer through human milk work together to prime and develop the infant's immune system. For example, we believe that there are components in human milk that are not found in formula that develop the infant's thymus. And the thymus is what makes T cells for the baby. Um, so this is a really important immune organ. Um, and some studies showed that the thymus is as much as like twice as large in a breastfed baby in, in a breastfed infant versus a formula fed infant. So this is the organ that makes T cells for the baby's entire life. Um, so human milk is so critically important, not only to protect against COVID-19, but seasonal influenza and dozens of other diseases, uh, gastroenteritis, um, rotavirus, all of those things. And I know before we started, Anne, you had mentioned that uh, unfortunately, in some areas and for some families, there may be a delay in immunizations due to logistical problems or maybe clinics shutting down or something like that. Human milk does not replace immunizations, but it complements immunizations. So we really need um, to support these breastfeeding families so that they can get not only the antibodies like secretory IgA, but also all of the other components like the human milk oligosaccharides that not only feed the good bacteria and develop a healthy microbiome, uh, preventing possibly necrotizing enterocolitis and all sorts of other gastrointestinal diseases, but these human milk oligosaccharides can also directly attach to bacteria and viruses like norovirus uh, to prevent attachment to the infant's epithelial lining in the gastrointestinal system and in the upper respiratory system as well. So in addition to the antibodies, passive immunity, development of the thymus in the infant's immune system, we have lactoferrin, lysozyme, and a whole host of cytokines and growth factors to protect the infant. So it is really a public health imperative that during COVID-19, breastfeeding families, whether they choose separation or they choose rooming in, are supported fully so that the infants can benefit from this immune protection, especially now. Right, absolutely. The last thing that a baby needs is to be exposed to COVID-19 and then also have norovirus diarrhea, or um, rotaviral diarrhea or influenza and not have that immune production to moderate that disease. So yeah, absolutely, totally agree with you. And unfortunately, I think that message has gotten lost and we really need to push that uh, quite a bit. So great. Um, all right, well, do you have anything else that you wanna share or add? Otherwise we'll have Lindsay do a little wrap up. I wanna thank all of our milk bankers around North America and the world. We are essential workers and I am so proud of all of our milk techs and donor screeners and our folks that work in shipping and receiving, um, everyone that's coming in or working from home on a daily basis to save tiny lives. Um, thank you so much to all of the milk bankers here in Illinois and Wisconsin and Texas in all over North America. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for the work that you do on a daily basis to save lives. Thank you. I agree. Thank you so much. And we will um, be in touch with you guys. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. 
For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at laughted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.